Welcome to The Pie. I am your host, Tess Vigland. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. So in this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're exploring the latest research on the work from home debate and how it's reflected not just here in the U.S., but around the world. Steve Davis is the William H. Abbott Distinguished Service Professor of International Business and Economics at UChicago's Booth School of Business. He and his co-authors conducted two surveys of full-time workers in 27 countries, first in mid-2021 and then in early 2022, from South Korea to India, from the U.S. to the U.K. and beyond. Steve, thanks so much for coming back to the show. Thanks, Tess. It's great to be back. You know, the last time we talked with you about the remote work revolution was in April of 2021. I think that was about eight years ago in in COVID years. Um, (laughs) And that episode was titled Work From Home Forever? Question mark. Fair to say this has turned into one of the defining and, and enduring questions of our work lives coming out of the pandemic? Oh, yes. But I think the question has uh, been answered, which is we're going to see uh, much higher work from home levels than before the pandemic indefinitely. Indefinitely. Uh, I think there was some doubt about that maybe back in April 2021. I don't think there's much doubt now. Um, There's still some uncertainty about where things will settle. There's a struggle between at least some employers and their employees as to how much time they'll spend working remotely. Um, But it's pretty clear we're not going back to the pre-pandemic situation. Can you think of any other time or event in recent history that's prompted such a widespread change in how how work happens? No, I can't really. I'm when I think of historical precedents, I think of the industrial revolution, the later shift uh, away from factories and goods production to service work. Those are even bigger developments, but the industrial revolution unfolded over two centuries or so and The shift uh, to services has been going on for many decades. So nothing else quite fits the combination of uh, scale and abruptness of the shift in working arrangements that was uh, precipitated by the pandemic. We hear a lot these days about how American employers, employees are navigating this issue. Uh, Suffice it to say, they do not see things the same way. Um, But I didn't really have a bead on how this was playing out in the rest of the world. What prompted you to say, hey, you know what, let's see about some global implications here? Well, two things. Um, We saw in the U.S. evidence for what we thought was a um, pretty compelling interpretation of how the big shift to work from home came about. And largely, we found evidence in the U.S. that both employers and workers favorably revised their assessment of how well you could work remotely from the experimentation they were forced to undertake during the pandemic. We saw a very clear story in the U.S., and the natural thing to do is to say, well, is the same thing happening in the rest of the world? And um, in terms of broad contours, we found, yes, it is. The same kind of revision of people's understandings of how productive that they could be remotely was happening elsewhere. Um, And that was leading to a big shift in working arrangements that looks likely to endure. There are differences across countries, to be sure. The most important one of which is that 
Remote work is still largely uh, confined to well-educated workers, those who have some college or completed college and so on. And those highly educated folks are, are much more abundant in the richer countries than they are in the poorer countries. But among the well-educated people, we see this shift to remote work, essentially in almost all the countries we've looked at. Let's talk about the survey and what it told you about, you know, what exactly the pandemic's role was in in catalyzing this shift to remote work. Part of it seems very obvious to me. We were all uh, globally told to stay home unless we were essential workers, so we didn't really have a choice but to do our work remotely. Um, but maybe the surprise here is that that it stuck. What are some of the other primary reasons that happened? Well, you're quite right. When the... the... The fact that we were all forced to experiment, we all know that. We all lived through it. What's not so obvious is, um, well, how did that shift our perceptions about the viability of remote work? And did a shift in perceptions translate into a shift in behaviors? And it's, it's on that score that we really find uh, two very interesting things. First, most workers, by no means all, but most workers were favorably surprised by how well they were able to work in a remote mode during the pandemic, especially after they'd kind of gotten over the initial, you know, learning how to use Zoom and other remote interaction technologies and so on. So you can see that very clearly when you just ask workers for their own assessments about their experiences working from home. It's natural and in a sense indeed reasonable to be skeptical about workers' own assessments of whether they were more or less productive so what we do is say, well, okay, well, how do these worker assessments relate to what employers plan for these workers to do after the pandemic is over? And there what we see is a really powerful relationship. Those workers who thought they were especially productive in remote mode during the pandemic are the same ones whose employers plan for them to work a lot in remote mode into the indefinite future. So it looks like, on average, employer assessments of how well remote work worked out and worker assessments of how well it worked out. They line up and that commonality of perceptions is what's shifting behavior persistently to more remote work, even as the pandemic recedes. So that's, that's probably the big key finding in this study, which replicates something we'd have found, we had found only for the U.S. in earlier work. One of the specific aspects you looked at was how the uh, societal experience of the pandemic affected work from home in different countries. So how long the lockdown lasted, the severity of the disease within a country. Can you talk us through some of those findings? Sure. You know, we, we came at this societal experience aspect with two hypotheses in mind. First, that societies that had more severe health consequences during the pandemic, which we measured by amount of cumulative deaths per capita, would be more likely to uh, rely more heavily on remote work after the pandemic, just because bad pandemic experiences would cause people to hunker down longer uh, in their own homes and acquire more experience working from home. And for a similar logic, we thought that in countries where uh, the government's mandated strong restrictions on commercial and social activities for longer periods of time that we'd also see some enduring impact on work from home levels. Is that what you found? Yes and no. We, uh, somewhat to our surprise, did not find any impact of pandemic severity and the extent of work from home either as of the survey in late 20, 
uh, mid-2021 and early 2022, or in employer plans after the pandemic. That was a hypothesis that didn't bear out in the data. But we did find that in countries where the government imposed stricter limits on commercial and social activity for longer periods of time, that that did have an enduring impact on work-from-home levels, as reflected in what employers plan to do after the pandemic's over. And the effects are are fairly sizable. So it might drive a country from, say, three-quarters of a day per week on average working from home to one in which they're working more like one or 1.1 days per week from home on average across people in the population. Let's talk about kind of the the percentages that you found in terms of how much people were working from home in various countries in the time that you did the survey, which was, you know, not in the heart of the pandemic. Can you give us a sense of how much is it happening here in the U.S., how many days of the week versus, say, India, South Korea? Sure. So let me start with the U.S. where we've got reasonably good data over longer periods of time. So before the pandemic, there had been a very slow upward crawl in the extent of working from home that had been going on for decades. But it had only reached about 5%, 5 or 6% of full paid workdays were done from home before the pandemic. And now it looks like it's going to settle at something more like 25%. Uh, so that's a huge increase. So maybe a five or six-fold increase. Now, the U.S. is ahead of or further down this path than in many other countries, including South Korea and Taiwan. They have much lower work-from-home levels now and appear to plan for lower work-from-home levels going forward. And that has partly to do with um, something we talked about earlier. Both those societies had relatively good pandemic experiences. They managed to keep the pandemic under control much more effectively, say, than we did in the United States um, without excessively harsh lockdowns on economic activity. So that that may have something to do with their uh, lower work from home levels now and going forward. They had less reason to adapt because they were more successful in containing the pandemic without uh, harsh lockdown measures. And on the other end? On the other end, well, we see among highly educated people in places like India and Brazil, two countries that did not have very successful experiences in containing the pandemic, uh, we see big increases in their work from home levels. These are among college, highly educated people in these societies, both now and going forward. So again, that that all suggests that um, there's something to this idea that the societal experience during the pandemic is going to have persistent lasting effects on the extent of work from home going forward. And what did uh, these global respondents say about how much they wanted to be working remotely versus how much they were currently being allowed to? Yeah, well, there's, there's a big gap, and you alluded to this earlier in our conversation. There remains a big gap between what workers want and uh, what employers plan or what employers are actually doing now. And among the highly educated people, say those with graduate degrees and so on, they're getting close to what they want (laughs) in terms of maybe they want to work from home on average two or three days a week, and they're getting something like that in practice. But as you move down the education scale or down the earnings distribution, you pretty much see everybody wants to work from home at least one or two days a week on average. Um, But that's not what employers are offering, and that's partly because 
many less educated people work in jobs where it's really not practical to work remotely. And it's perhaps also because they may have less bargaining power with their employers. I want to address some of the demographic factors in the work-from-home phenomenon in various countries. Uh, Here in the States, uh, we've heard and talked a lot about how women and minorities are the most eager to have a remote work option, whether, whether it's fully remote or hybrid. Does that play out elsewhere and for the same reasons? Um, it does with respect to women. We, we see that uh, both in terms of their willingness to pay to, for the opportunity to work from home a couple days a week and just in their expressed desires about how many days per week they would like to work from home. Women want to work, work from home more than men, and that's when you control for other things like number of kids, how far they live from work, and so on. Uh, we don't look at the minority question outside the U.S., Um, We do see another interesting pattern, though, which is not surprising, but nonetheless interesting and and large in magnitude, which is people who have younger children under 14, they have a stronger desire to work from home. And that's equally true for men and women. So having kids makes running your household more complicated. It makes your, your life a little bit more hectic. It makes time management a little bit more critical. And that seems to intensify the desire for the kind of time savings, less commuting, that come with remote work, but also the ability to more flexibly manage when you work over the course of the day. What about the split between employees who want to be in the office and those who don't? What did the survey show in terms of how to kind of reconcile the needs of really different sets of workers? Well, that is a key issue for companies and for managers. And even though most people value the opportunity to work from home one or two days a week, there's a significant chunk of people who hate the idea. They really crave the uh, face-to-face interaction and the energy that they derive from working in the office. (laughs) That may be especially true for for senior executives and managers, many of whom they like going to the office. It's It's a great place for them. Part of this is within companies figuring out how you manage these different constituencies in your workforce and try to satisfy all of them. There's no doubt about it, that's a big challenge. But part of the solution also involves resorting of workers across companies and organizations in the marketplace. So if you are the kind of person who really values going to the office five days a week and working with other people who are also committed to going to the office four or five days a week, then you probably want to seek an employer like Tesla, where where that's what they're looking for. So... I expect over time, and this has already happened to some extent, people will resort. They'll sort to the kinds of employers who are offering the working arrangements that they value. The key change from before the pandemic is now there's a much richer menu to choose from for workers. So in economics jargon, the opportunity set has expanded. What are the broad implications in the data here for workers themselves? I mean, what does it mean if this remote work revolution becomes the standard? Well, there's several implications. So let me start with what I view as the good news, clearly good news. And it's this huge expansion of opportunity sets that I mentioned before. If you have the desire before the pandemic to work one or two days a week from home, unless you were a really privileged worker, you really didn't have the opportunity to do that. Now millions, tens of millions of Americans now have the opportunity to work from home one or two days a week. 
So that makes them better off in a very direct way. And some of that win, that some of that benefit, will also be recouped by employers that figure out how to make remote work work. Um, because if you can provide your employees a set of working arrangements that they like, then you can offer that in lieu of a bigger wage increase. You can use that as a way to uh, improve retention and improve recruitment, cut down on turnover and, and recruiting costs. On the downside, or at least potential downside, is the whole shift to remote work presents major economic and fiscal challenges to densely populated urban areas that were really designed to service large flows of inward commuters and support a high concentration of commercial activity in a small physical space. Yeah, the the lunch break, employees going out to eat at a local establishment, that that really gets tamped down on. It does. And, and so what that means is that for cities, sales tax revenues are down. The property tax base has shrunk. There are fewer people staying at hotels. So there's less in the way of lodging taxes. So the local economic base and the local tax base in densely populated ur- urban areas shrunk. They now face residents and commuters who can more easily say if crime rates get out of hand or if local public schools aren't up to standards that they that that people want if the city's just a less pleasant place to be people have opportunities now to work remotely even if their job is nominally in the city so it's a big challenge for cities and if they don't respond effectively, then you can imagine that the same kinds of things that played out in the 70s when we built freeways that made it easier for people to live in the suburbs and commute into the cities, well, now they don't even have to commute. So it's, it's even more important now that cities get crime under control, that they provide good public schools to attract residents, and more generally that they provide a good package of urban amenities relative to the taxes that they are levying. And some cities in the United States haven't done a very good job of that. And is is that something global as well? Clearly, we're seeing it in the U.S., but is that happening around the world? The forces I talked about are global, but they play out with greater force in the United States than in most other rich countries for a few reasons. First, the United States is a very big country. And that means if the city that you live in isn't really performing well in terms of providing high-quality local public goods for the taxes you pay, you have many other cities where you can move to that might be similar in many respects. They're certainly similar with respect to the language, the legal system, the culture is broadly similar. So it's very different than thinking about moving from one small European country to another. So there's just more opportunities of other places to go in the United States. Second, the United States has an unusually decentralized approach to the funding of local public goods and decision-making about local public goods, local taxes, and so on, uh, compared to most other rich countries. So there's lots to be said for a federalist approach, but it also means that the tax base tends to be highly localized. So when there's a negative shock to the local tax base that redounds to the ability of the, of the local city, local municipality, to provide public goods. Third distinguishing feature is that um, violent crime is a bigger problem in the United States than in most other rich countries around the world. And so there's kind of more scope 
for high crime rates in urban areas in the United States to deter inward commuters and to deter potential residents and to encourage existing residents to go elsewhere. The ability of people to escape cities that don't provide the kind of environment where they feel safe has become greater. At least that's true for people who are um, in the kinds of jobs that lend themselves to remote work. So in all three of those respects, the United States um, is a bit more exposed to the potential downside for core urban areas that come um, with uh, the shift to remote work. Well, Steve Davis, I'm going to predict that uh, the work from home question is not going away and there will be plenty for you to study in the years to come. Yes, I'm, I'm confident that prediction's on the money. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you, Tess. Next time on the show, we'll hear the economic case for keeping kids in school during the next pandemic. There's some credible estimates that it's above $10 trillion in lost future earnings and productivity as a result of school closures. $10 trillion. The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. And you can sign up for our newsletter there as well. And of course, you can subscribe to The Pie on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Vigeland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.